1: Check out Qualia NAD Plus risk-free for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash dave15, Qualia NAD Plus. It's what I use. What if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress, and take more control of your body? Welcome to Quantum Upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io Dave for a seven-day free trial. Today's cool fact of the day is a group of crickets is
2: called an orchestra. In 1992, a guy named Jim Wilson took recordings from an orchestra of crickets and slowed it down to the equivalent of a human lifespan. The cool thing is, he figured out it sounds like an orchestra
1: choir. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds, and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols
2: Chris runs chriscresser.com and he's the author of this amazing new book called Your Personal Paleo Code. If you're watching on YouTube, you can check it out right now. Chris is a licensed acupuncturist and a practitioner of integrative and functional medicine. It's a very well-respected website and I've talked with Chris on the show, I'm guessing about 18 months ago in one of our earlier episodes. I'm definitely a fan of his work. He was named one of the 50 Most Influential People in Health and Fitness by Greatest, along with Dr. Oz and Michelle Obama. Although I hear Michelle Obama has better arms than you, Chris. Is this true?
3: <laughs> Could be. I don't She's got some guns. Uh,
2: definitely. <laughs> now, Chris, you got a mysterious tropical illness in your early 20s, right? Yeah. This led to yeah. you becoming essentially a guy who's hacked his own health and then started helping others. Mm -hmm. Tell me a little more about what happened there and kind of your experience when you returned and said there's something weird going on with me. I don't know what it is. What happened?
3: Yeah, yeah. So I was uh, in my early 20s. I worked for a little while after college and then I sold everything I owned and took off to see the world. Uh, Ended up spending about a year and a half traveling around the world. And when I was in Indonesia, I was doing some surfing. uh, A whole bunch of us that were in the water got sick and it was a classic, you know, vomiting, diarrhea, fever, uh, delirium. I just, I don't really remember anything for that three day period. And I fairly quickly recovered my uh, health. You know, it was like the acute episode. I got better, but then as the months progressed, it became clear that um, the, that it wasn't getting better and in fact it was getting worse. And that led to like a decade long period of uh, where I was just, uh, really sick. I didn't know what was going on. I was seeing every kind of doctor or uh, healthcare practitioner you can imagine. I flew to three different countries to see top specialists in infectious disease, tropical disease, gastroenterologists. Uh, I flew all the way to Sydney to to a gastroenterology clinic there that's world renowned. So. Um, and then I was seeing, you know, doctors of Chinese medicine, naturopaths, uh, Ayurvedic specialists, energy healers, shamans. I mean, you name it, I was basically doing it. And I took I did probably 13 to 14 special diets from uh, macrobiotic vegan to raw foods to like a traditional Chinese medicine type of diet with almost everything cooked. To, uh, I mean, uh, every supplement that you could imagine, herbs, uh, conventional medications, uh, you name it, I did it. And uh, it, it just became clear at some point that the person that was most invested in my healing was me. Yeah. And if anyone was going to figure out, it would be me. And of course, I, I was, you know, I, I think everyone that I saw, the conventional doctors, they met well and they, their heart was in the right place, but they just didn't have the tools to help me. So uh, I decided to go back and study integrative and functional medicine as for, for two reasons. One, because I wanted to gain the knowledge and the, and the understanding of how to look at the, at the research studies myself and, under, and critique them and um, know what they're saying. Because as you know, Dave, they often say something different than what the media <laughs> reports them as saying. Um, and then I also, in the back of my mind, was thinking, man... This I hope this experience is worth something, yeah. you know, to me and, and and to other people because I've been through the ringer here and I I know that what I've gained from it is valuable and I know that I can help other people. And so that's essentially what happened. I, I eventually um you know, kind of found my way through the labyrinth and made it out to the other side. And then I finished my degree and and opened my doors. And and now I I really kind of specialize in helping people who are dealing with fairly complex conditions like the one that I dealt struggle with for so many years. It's
2: amazing how uh, desperation is the best medicine, you could say.
0: (laughs) That's very accurate.
2: I had a similar experience in that when I weighed 300 pounds, uh, I had chronic things, you know, fibromyalgia chronic fatigue Lyme disease the whole thing and saw mm-hmm. hundreds of people and ended up going down a similar path I never yeah. formally studied medicine but uh, work with a lot of the the same tool sets uh, around especially nutritionally and it's just because I didn't want to feel like crap all the time just like you didn't and in yeah. that that burning need to not die in your twenties.
3: Well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's a powerful motivator for sure. Not wanting to wake up doubled over in pain every day or feel like you have not enough energy to, you know, get through even half the yeah. days when you're when you're in your early twenties, it's a pretty powerful motivator for sure.
2: I because of the work I do with the Silicon Valley Health Institute, an anti-aging nonprofit group where a lot of our members are are older. And I see mm-hmm. the same kind of motivation with people when they get sick in later in life. But the few people I know who got really sick in their 20s and really got focused on hacking it tend to have the sort of zeal that most people get for these things much later in life. But it gives you a lot more decades to accumulate knowledge and really to help other people with this kind of knowledge. Because I don't think anyone in medical school, including my wife, you know, Carolyn's graduate. Just you can't get that from school. You get it from waking up in the morning going, how am I going to live today? Uh, So how did that come down to this, the personal paleo code? Like, like, what's the transition yeah. from there into uh, into your new book?
3: Yeah. So I I think one of the biggest things I learned in my health journey was that, uh, as I said before, that I really had to figure it out. And that doesn't mean that help wasn't all around me and, and that I didn't reach out for help and advice from other experts and colleagues and friends. But it did mean that I ultimately was the authority on what worked for me. And, you know, I could read a book and learn about someone else's experience and that was often helpful in that it gave me things to try and experiment with in my own, uh, you know, biohacking process. But at the end of the day, no matter how beautiful a theory was or no matter how transformative an approach was for somebody else, if it didn't help me, then, you know, it, 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 it wasn't really that useful. So... Uh, And then, of course, I started to work with patients and I saw the same things. I saw, you know, I could give people a set of basic guidelines and they could start there and those were a good starting place, but then they would have to customize and tweak it under my guidance to to make it really, truly sustainable and adaptable over the long term. So I developed this three-step approach in my clinic, working with patients to help people create their own ideal diet and lifestyle plan that's based on the paleo approach. Um, it's not strict paleo, as you know, yeah. um, but it's based on the paleo approach. And i found that to be extremely useful. And the feedback I got on that process was great. And I, I decided that it was something worth sharing uh, on a bigger scale. And, and a book is just a vehicle for doing that, really.
2: It, it definitely is. And I think you did a great job in the book of Thank you. Under, of helping people understand that personalization. When people write into your blog, and certainly I'd, I'd probably get the same thing, they say things like, you know, I just tell me what works. And, and, right. and the answer is, well, don't you have a mirror? <laughs> right? Like, yeah.
3: Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, my job would be a lot easier if I could just say, this is what works. I mean, I would just have a web page and there would be what works yeah. and then that would be it.
2: So do you recommend other biohacking tools for people? I mean, certainly you use labs in your practice, but do you have people or do you recommend that people do certain self-tracking to know what works or is it all just more like, you know, do I feel good today? Do I not feel good? Like how how rigorous or, yeah, or quantified is your approach to helping people see that they're not doing something that's wrong?
3: Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. Well, I would say there's even some personalization there too because I think different people will have different Um, you know, some people are really drawn to uh, a quantified approach and and really get into all the tools and other people will be less drawn to that. So I don't really necessarily um, advocate hard for a particular approach, but I like to offer people tools. And then if they are drawn to using them, then great. So uh, one one thing, for example, that I use with blood sugar is a glucometer. Yeah. So um, I'm sure many of your listeners know what that is. But for those that don't, it's a device that you can use to test your blood sugar at home. And that can give you uh, a really more objective way of determining what your carbohydrate tolerance is. So that's one example. Uh, a pedometer like Fitbit or something like it, I often recommend as a means of tracking uh, non-exercise physical activity, which I think is arguably more important than exercise. You know,
2: if, if we were in the same room and not on other sides of, of a video here, I'd high-five you for that one. Non-exercise <laughs> movement, right? <laughs> that's, yeah. it, it's such a... It's such a huge thing. I just uh, that that bears repeating for people listening here. Movement mm-hmm. matters, but it ain't exercise. So, all right, keep going. So, I didn't mean to interrupt yeah. you, but yeah. you just you okay. deserve extra no. credit for that.
3: <laughs> yeah, no, I. You probably know it's one of my passions too. And um, just a little side note here: when I started to write the book, I realized I was going to kill myself if I did it the way I had started, which was sitting in my chair just typing away. Yep. And so I got a treadmill. That's when I got my treadmill desk, and I ended up. Uh, In the course of writing the book, I walked 2,200 miles uh, (laughs) while while writing. And so um, that was a huge, that was a huge lifesaver for me. So anyways, uh, back to quantified self, Uh, the Fitbit uh, pedometers, uh, certainly scale for people who are tracking their weight, like you can do withing scale or more uh, sophisticated scales. I like tracking, online tracking tools like Dan's plan. Uh, which offer the ability to, to track your sleep and your, not, your non-exercise and exercise physical activity, as well as some other markers. Uh, sometimes if people are inclined to track what they're eating, things like Fitbit.com or, or Nutrition Data or, or, or uh, uh, what's the other one? There, there are a few out there. And then I have one of my own tracking tools that uh, I use for my patients and that I originally just used it with my patients. And now it's part of some online programs I have that, where they fill out an, a, a questionnaire with subjective symptom responses. And then so they can then see their, their progress over a period of time charted out on a graph. Okay. So there, there are some others, too, depending on specific you know, issues. But those are the basic ones
2: that's a that's a great list so you do include that for people Mm -hmm. i found that when i started getting sick uh this was almost 20 years ago uh i didn't have any level of trust in how i felt like i ate my wheaties therefore i should feel lots of energy (laughs) therefore i do feel lots of energy how long does it take someone who comes in and and sees you uh, in your practice to realize that they have some degree of visibility into how well or unwell they are on a, on a minute by minute or day by day basis
3: mm-hmm. that's a great question. Uh, I think it it really differs from person to person and de- depends on the level of body awareness they had before they you know before they come to see me. Um, if typically athletes dancers. Um, people who've been involved in physical activity tend to have a higher level of that because they're just a little bit more tuned into their bodies. Uh, meditators are, are also like that, or yogis, people who are doing that kind of stuff. Um, but but yeah, I've had you know a, a typical kind of. Uh, your, your typical stereo, your stereotypical male who, you know, you know, work, works in an office perhaps, and, and isn't talking a lot of of touchy feely subjects or, um, you know, isn't really tuned into their body. Uh, I do have them track, I usually have people do a symptom journal, mm. symptom tracking journal where they, they'll track their diet for a period of time and then they'll write down how they feel at various points yeah. throughout the day as a way of just uh, facilitating that kind of awareness. And generally within a month, if they're doing that fairly regularly, they start to make connections like, oh, I had that bagel, <laughs> you know, and I knew I shouldn't have and then I had heartburn that like night. Bagel you know, equals and they, and they might kryptonite. A, <laughs> right, and it, and maybe not even they were missing that before because it wasn't immediate, you know. Yeah. Um, but then they were able to see like on Tuesday and Saturday and then they, they had something in the morning they shouldn't have had. And that night they had heartburn.
2: I found that when I started this, I was exactly that guy. I weighed 300 mm-hmm. pounds. I had you know, high, high performance Silicon Valley career and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Sitting under fluorescent lights in a cubicle all day long. Yeah. And I started taking notes in the margin of my work notebook, you know, the laboratory books all mm-hmm. the engineers carry, and I'd say, eat yeah. this, feel like crap. And, and what I found out though was a lot of my symptoms were a two-day lag time. So I would uh, like yeah. cheat on on Friday, you know, this idea of cheating once a week isn't particularly new. It's been around forever. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So I, I would try this and, and I would be like, wow, my, my Mondays and Tuesdays are a wreck because of what I did on Friday night. And it wasn't alcohol. It was right. just like, ooh, I had bread. Right, right. So in your book, though, you talk about how you follow the program about 80% of the time. Um, But, I mean, aren't some things just off the list versus 80% of the time? Like, how do you teach people, like, really, don't eat that crap?
3: Yeah, so um, the 80-20 rule is really more of a, a concept than the actual percentage, And I, in most cases, it's more like 95,5. Okay, I buy that.: uh, for, for most of my patients, or 90, 10. Um, some people that are just extremely robust and healthy um, can, can get away with 80, 20, perhaps. But uh, I also talk about in the book how it, de- you know, it depends on your health status, your goals. And what the specific thing that we're talking about. So if you're celiac or you have gluten intolerance, non-celiac gluten sensitivity, then you have a hundred zero, you know, rule with gluten means hundred percent of the time you avoid it. And there's no, that doesn't fall into the 80, 20 rule at all. Um, Likewise, if you're in you're healing from some kind of chronic illness Mm -hmm or you're maybe trying to optimize your performance or you're trying to lose weight or you have some kind of goal that you're trying to reach, then it's probably going to be more like 95.5 as well uh, because you're not in an optimal place and so you don't have as much flexibility and leeway. Uh, So that's meant to be kind of a scalable percentage depending on your health status and your goals.
2: Uh What a wonderful answer! And uh, in my own experience, like you learn, this cheat is an expensive cheat, and this is—that's right. (laughs) This is not an expensive cheat. I'll have the cheap cheats versus you Um, know whacking yourself over the head uh, just because it was going to taste good.
3: Uh, Yeah, and you know, Dave. Some people, I'm not. I don't. I'm not a zealot with the 80/20 rule either. It's like some people like a strict paleo approach. It doesn't bother them at all. They're happy to do yeah. that, and um, they they don't need the 80/20 rule. It's just for. It's just it can come in handy at times for certain people. That's that's about yeah, it.
2: That that makes uh, that makes sense. And if you're the kind of person who's going to die if you don't have a glass of wine, and wine doesn't knock you out for a week, then hey, you know, right. more power to right. All right, I, I hear you. Yeah, and. I,
3: I, I'm
2: jealous. <laughs> me too. I would love to drink red wine. But,
3: uh, stuff yeah. seems like
2: kryptonite to me.
3: Doesn't work for me either.
2: So, all right, let's talk about genetics then. You, you talk about body type, your genetic blueprint, and in individual needs. But can you basically fix your genetics? And like, what's a body type?
3: Yeah. So. Uh, I think the whole genetic question is fascinating because it's evolving so quickly. I mean, even just 10 or 15 years ago, the the epigenetics was a fairly new concept and we didn't really have much of an an understanding of how important gene expression is in this Mm -hmm. whole dialogue. And so we were largely just talking about genes and single nucleotide polymorphisms and their effect on health. And, you know, when you looked at the effect of SNPs on health, you would see like less than 3% of disease is exclusively related to single nucleotide polymorphisms. You know, just to, like if you have this mutation, you're absolutely going to have this disease. But now we know that it's way more complex and, and, great and nuanced than that. You can have a genetic predisposition and then an environmental trigger activates an epigenetic expression. And then that combines with several other factors that we're only beginning to understand to create this particular your own particular milieu of uh, health and disease. And so uh, I would say that my view on, on the contribution of genes to disease has kind of evolved over the past few years. I, maybe like three or four years ago, I would have said it was less of a contributor than I think it is now, just as we start to E- examine and learn more about these, uh, uh, especially epigenetic expressions. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm. Uh, maybe my answer is I, I, I don't fully know um, what what the, how to quantify the contribution of genes. And, but I do know that environment, I, I, I still believe that environment trumps trumps all of that yeah. and the reason that i believe that is because you, although there have been some genetic changes recently our genes are largely the same as they've been for a long time and a lot of the modern diseases that we're suffering from are very new on the evolutionary time scale
2: well said for instance i'm four percent neanderthal i know you can see it in my overhanging forehead right? <laughs> do you have your 23 and me results
3: i do have them. do you use them uh I don't, I've used them for more like uh, methylation and yeah. detox stuff, but I haven't gone into a lot of detail with the with the other data. Frankly, just because I haven't had time in the last six to nine months to pay much attention to when, them.
2: When I started uh, talking about this stuff about five years ago at the Silicon Valley Health Institute, even before I started writing for the Bulletproof executive blog, mm. I was pretty down on these because I've seen the studies that show you send the same samples to two different labs, you get two different answers. Um, but I've also, I think like you, I've shifted my thinking. Um, you have a a lot of epigenetics knowledge from your healthy baby code. Uh, I wrote the better baby book, which is an epigenetics Mm -hmm. book that's out there. I don't know if you've seen a copy of it or not, but, um, we both share that perspective, but I've found lately when someone goes on uh, a, a paleo like diet they go on the bulletproof diet uh, or any sort of health regimen if they don't see massive reductions in inflammation I'm like just get your 23 Me results and run it through Genetic Genie and you can look at your detox right. profiles and mm-hmm. every single time it's like a methylation or transulfation pathway issue Yeah, yeah. are you seeing the same thing with people? it seems like 90, yeah. almost
3: 90% of the time yeah, I see uh, methylation issues uh, is, are like one of the biggest impediments for people when they're not having the, um, the, the responses that they – and not, not only to weight loss stuff, but like if I'm treating a patient for gut issues mm-hmm. and I'm using the same pro- – similar protocol that I use with all my other patients, but they're just not getting better and I do retests and their, their markers are the same, and I do – we do the same sort of – the 23andMe and Genetic Genie or any of the other services, and almost certainly they'll have some kind of methylation issue or transsulfuration, but uh, I, I see more methylation in my patients. Um,
2: I, I've seen more of it from the people who chose to share the results with me. And sometimes it's yeah. just, hey, I'm going to point you there, you go do your own homework, but it's right. going to come up. So i got to say hats off to Amy Yasko for bringing all this out to everyone. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if she listens mm-hmm. to either of our podcasts, but uh, I've gotten an awful lot, and if, if you're listening to this and we're getting a little geeky here, Um, Chris, there's usually like 50,000 people the first week. We just hit like top ranked on on iTunes.
3: Congratulations. Oh, thanks, man.
2: Um, What we're talking about here is what happens the way your body breaks down toxins and different people do it differently based on their genes. That can really affect what vitamins you should take, whether folic acid is going to knock you out or not, things like that. Mm -hmm. And if you are already performing at a super high level, Having this knowledge is still good because then you can avoid things that are just not going to work well for your genes. But if you're not performing as well as you want, then knowing this isn't terribly expensive these days. Unless, of course, the FDA's attack on 23andMe sort of ruins (laughs) things. But
3: Yeah, there is that. Yeah.
2: All right, what about body type? Um, How does that play a role into what foods you should eat?
3: So to me, I mean, the way that I do this process is not – so much about, okay, if you have this body type, eat this way. If you have that body type, eat that way. I generally start, the, the first step of the process, as you know, is a 30-day is a reset, what I call, it's similar to a 30-day challenge, and, and it's the strict paleo approach. And that's, I basically think of the paleo diet at this point as an elimination diet. It,
2: it pretty much is.
3: <laughs> yeah. So, um, you do that for 30 days, and then there are some ways that you tweak it depending on your body. So if you're overweight and you have blood sugar dysregulation and you want to lose weight, I would, you know, steer people towards a lower carb version even during the first 30 days, yep. and slightly higher protein intake for the same reason. And uh, you know, if someone has autoimmune condition, a known autoimmune condition, I would steer them towards an autoimmune version of that as well the first 30 days, and then the second part of The process is reintroducing gray area foods uh, that are, I think, healthy when well tolerated, like full fat, fermented dairy, raw, if you can get it, et cetera. And then stage three is where the body type issues would come come more into play. And that's where we talk about macronutrient ratios. We talk about meal frequency and timing, you know, uh, three meals a day plus snacks or intermittent fasting, Mm -hmm. carbohydrate backloading, uh, customizing Uh, your diet for activity levels and goals, Uh, if you're 60 pounds overweight and trying to lose weight, you're going to have a different approach than if you're, you know, training for the CrossFit Olympics, for example. So I don't actually focus quite as much on body type as just personalizing all of those factors for each, each each individual.
2: That makes sense. So we were talking about body type and uh, you're not paying as much attention to it as you are to the person themselves. So it's not you're shaped like a pear, you're shaped like an apple, you're shaped like a carrot or whatever else. Mm. Um, that, uh, that matches my experience as well. Now, how do you respond to the argument that we're not cavemen anymore? We don't live like them. You know, It's not cold when we sleep. We don't live in caves. We don't see saber-toothed tigers. So why should we actually bother to eat that way?
3: Well, it's a. I think it's a valid question, first of all. I mean, I, I actually find myself agreeing with a certain aspects of a lot of the re- most recent paleo critiques, like Marlene Zook's Paleo Fantasy. The problem is I think the critiques often are uh, a little bit oversimplified and they throw the baby out with the bathwater. So one example would be uh, the idea that there was no paleo diet because everybody... All you know, the, there was such a huge variation in what our paleo ancestors ate, so the concept of a paleo diet is silly because yeah. there was no one diet. Well, okay, that's true, there was a tremendous variation in what people ate, but what we, we also know absolutely what they weren't eating yeah, they weren't eating cheese doodles <laughs> and drinking big gulps, and uh, you know. Having industrial seed, eating like all kinds of yeah. processed and fried foods, and and cooked in industrial seed oils, we know that without a doubt. So, I think you know, we, it is important to tell people when you're talking about a paleo approach that that it, there is a lot of uh, variation in in what humans can tolerate within the template of a basic paleo diet. Um, but it doesn't invalidate the entire concept just because there was a lot of variation in what people ate. Uh, likewise, you also, you'll, you'll often hear the idea that our ancestors died when they were 30, so why would we want to emulate their diet and lifestyle? That's just crazy. And uh, it is true that average lifespan is 30 years old, but that doesn't take into account the challenges that our ancestors faced that we're not facing today, like very high rates of infant yeah. mortality, trauma, violence, exposure to the elements, etc. And if you take like a hypothetical group of 10 people and three of them die in, infant, you know, in childbirth or infancy, another three or four die during their teenage or childhood or teenage years, maybe one gets eaten by a lion – uh, a few others get die in some kind of tribal warfare or exposure to the elements, and three live until they're 80, the average lifespan of that ten, group of 10 people is going to be really low, you know, 25 years old or something. But that doesn't really paint the whole picture. So um, I think the best way to think of the paleo concept or is as a starting place, as a, we know that we're well adapted to that lifestyle and to that diet. Um, and we can use that as a jumping off point to create our own ideal diet and lifestyle. But it's, it's, it's not, we're, it's, this is not about recreation yeah. as others have said before me, you know, we're not, it doesn't mean you have to sleep outside in the backyard and, and run around in a loincloth.
2: Um, that's too bad because I just got a new loincloth, but I'm going
3: <laughs> to, <laughs> I mean, it's sleeping in the backyard. There's nothing wrong with it, but it's not required. Exactly.
2: So what about intermittent fasting? You mentioned that earlier. What's your take on intermittent yeah. fasting? Uh,
3: I think it's beneficial for certain people in certain situations. And uh, you probably hear me saying this sort of thing a lot, but it is what I believe. So um, I think it can be helpful for, for weight loss, for blood sugar regulation and insulin sensitivity, for infections, chronic infections. Um, I think it's not that helpful in some cases with people with adrenal fatigue, uh, yeah. people with, uh, hy- thyroid, hypothyroid issues, depending, depending, uh, people who, women who are pregnant, I wouldn't necessarily you know, recommend a, a lot of intermittent <laughs> fa- fasting. <laughs> Amen. Um, yeah. Kids, I don't recommend intermittent fasting yeah. very much. Um, cause they're growing, they need all the nutrients yeah. that they can my, my get. My kids don't so, fast. Yeah. yeah. So, so yeah, I think, uh, A useful tool to have in your bag and just personally i find myself moving in and out of it some days i'll intermittent fast just kind of spontaneously because it feels like the right thing to do and other days i'll i'll eat more normal you know three meals and snacks so i i really at this point um just try to tune into what my body needs and uh and go with that
2: there's not a lot of research on what daily or inter- intermittent fasting is going to do for long periods of time. And I right. I did that for for quite a while, although I, I do bulletproof intermittent fasting where you just have the bulletproof coffee with pure fat, but right. I didn't want to activate my yeah. protein or sugar pathways. Yeah. And yeah. Um, I found that after a couple like oh, good three or four years of doing that, like six mm-hmm. days a week uh, mm-hmm. that. I still do it most of the time, but I think it's beneficial mm-hmm. to not do it every day. So at least two days a mm-hmm. week, I kind of force myself to have breakfast, even though I don't like breakfast anymore because I have more energy when I don't have it. Yeah. And I'm playing around with what that might do to some of the various like like sex hormone levels, because like uh-huh. there's no, I, I don't think we're really going to see any scientific, you know, broad scale studies of intermittent fasting in enough populations with enough variations to really tell us a lot.
3: N- not unless you pay for those dude. yeah but i mean to do
2: it for over oh, four <laughs> years later
3: you're gonna feel this like yeah. Yeah, i don't yeah. think i don't think there's
2: yeah. yeah i'm not that kind of a not that kind of a wealthy guy um i no. I, I always say i made six million dollars when i was 26 i lost it when i was 28 like the company went bankrupt all right i experienced a burst yeah. of wealth that let me get well but right. i didn't right. stay with it so
3: right right
2: yeah we'll have to we'll have to yeah. you whatever know, whatever crowdfund that one chris
3: yeah i think so no, I, I agree. I mean, I think if there's one thing that is constant was constant for our ancestors, it was change. Oh yeah. And so, so you know, the idea that they were intermittent fasting every single day is is not accurate. either. I mean, we can say for sure that they went per- periods where they didn't have food or access to as much food, but but they weren't doing things in as routine of a way as we were in any on any side of the equation. So I think that introducing some variability and maybe even some random variability is a a really good idea.
2: All right, here's a crazy question for you. What about water fasting? And I don't mean having only water. I mean, some days like not drinking very much water and then some days Mm -hmm. drinking more than normal and varying the intake versus eight eight times a day. I've been playing around with that lately.
3: Yeah, Uh, I I definitely have some experience uh, with that. At at one point during my... um, you know, the, the sort of deepest, darkest periods of my illness where I just couldn't digest anything, I would just go for days without eating. And it was more out of necessity than anything else. But um, I think if someone is v- relatively robust from a health perspective and and, and has a relatively strong, uh, is in a fairly good place that that fasting like that can be beneficial. But again, it's kind of like intermittent fasting. I wouldn't recommend it for someone who's really weak for someone who's got really significant adrenal fatigue, uh, cert- I mean, this probably goes without saying, but I always like to be clear, preg- pregnancy is not a good time to do that. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah so I think, I think there's, there's probably a place for that, but I would, I would say it's more for people who are, um, who are fairly robust.
2: When my wife was uh, 16, she did a, a water fast for a, a good number of days. Uh, and mm. she didn't have an eating disorder or anything she just read about it in a book on Eastern meditation so yeah. I'll try this and she broke her yeah. thyroid and couldn't gain weight for almost 20 years <laughs> after she did wow. that uh, in wow. fact until uh, well, like we're gonna put even more fat into you uh, mm-hmm. that you know she she finally got uh, the curves yeah. that she lost at that time so I think there are some risks to it but I also know a lot of people benefit greatly from like a four day water fast. so I Absolutely. Yeah.
3: And and there's a, I mean, as you, as you pointed out, it's, there are some non-physiological benefits too, you know, some psychological yeah. and spiritual benefits. I, I, some of the more extended fasting periods have been when I've been doing like meditation retreat. And, uh, it's really interesting to see for me, some of the most interesting insights that I've had from fasting have been related to my relationship with food. Yeah. And, and how I use food for other purposes than nourishment. And I think just for that reason alone, it's probably worth everybody doing some limited period of, of fasting. Uh, yes.
2: Yeah. I, I, my longest fast was uh, four days and I did it in a cave with no one around me for 10 miles in any direction mm-hmm. in the desert outside Sedona. Uh, mm-hmm. and this was led by a, a, a shaman so the idea was I I'd just drop me off in the middle of the desert by that cave and like hang out there. I'll be back in four days. And I wanted to yeah. expressly look at, okay, what is no social contact and all the emotional stuff that comes up with that and no food, just water. Like what's that going to do? And, yeah. and it was for me about working on the relationship between food and other people. And it, it was, yeah. it was a really good experience to be perfectly honest, but most people don't mm-hmm. have time and space to make the connections there that you're talking about. Right. So you've experienced that. Right. In your own your own life, do you ever recommend that for people you work with?
3: Um, not typically, okay. it, it's but but sometimes you know it, it would be a kind of special patient and a special set of circumstances that I would I do I do tend to recommend it in situations where I feel like people have uh, where there's a strong need to examine that relationship and to kind of there's like a pattern that can fasting can really help break those patterns in some situations that that are just unconscious and repetitive. And taking a step out of that with a fast can, can really gain help somebody to gain perspective that they can't get otherwise.
2: Um, well said. We touched earlier on exercise versus movement. Now, what about on the exercise side of things? What kind of exercise, for how long, how frequently? Like, where, where do you mm-hmm. come down on that?
3: Yeah. Um, I... I tend to be uh, a little more conservative on that front probably than, than some others. Uh, I think certainly there are, there's plenty of room for really high intensity training and people who are training for a a specific reason, purpose, athletics, et cetera. Uh, I'm not a big fan of, you know, doing like five Metcons a week in in CrossFit, for example, (laughs) I, I, um, I, I don't, you know, I think CrossFit can be done in a way that's really healthy yeah, and beneficial. I and mean, there are there are a lot of CrossFit owners and trainers out there. Um, I mean, I have a lot as patients. I have a lot on my email list, and I talk to a lot of them. And I think there are a lot of people doing really sophisticated, um, smart training in the CrossFit world. But. There is also you know, a, a group within the CrossFit world that I think is essentially just driving people into the ground. And yeah. I mean, I, I would say like if I could start like a CrossFit recovery group in my, <laughs> in, in my, in my, in my patient population. Yeah. I mean, I, I literally, I have, I would say like some fairly substantial percentage of my patients are people who've been pretty wrecked from CrossFit. Their adrenals are completely tanked. Their sex hormones are just on the floor. Um, they can, in some cases, hardly function, and it's really challenging, to tell you the truth, to bring them back. It takes a long time, and and they're also the, tend to be the type A yeah. people who, like, as soon as they start to feel even a little bit better, they're gonna go right back to what they were doing before. So it's the the challenge is really inviting them to see that that type of physical activity can't is really only meant to be done for short periods of time, if at all, and can't really be sustained over a long period without doing damage, especially in the context of the modern life. I mean, maybe if that's all you were doing and you didn't have a full-time job and you weren't sleep deprived and everything else, it might be possible, but not the way most people are living now.
2: I do most of my coaching. when There isn't a lot of time every week for, for coaching with what I do, but it's typically very successful entrepreneurs, CEOs, uh, hedge fund manager types, so these guys are as Type A as Type A gets. Uh, wow. And then I've definitely seen a handful of them. Same thing, you know. I, I started doing CrossFit and like I, I lost my mojo and I, I, you know, sleeping mm-hmm. all the time. And it comes down to the life of being a, a, an executive or a high performance business person like that. It's like running a marathon that never ends. Right. Just the lifestyle. Right. You're on airplanes. You're doing this, and certainly I've lived enough of that. And for me, having coming out of this, you know, I'm pretty darn sick, I'm 100 pounds overweight and I'm living that lifestyle, to be able to to bring all that together and to be able to learn how to live the lifestyle and stay even or even improve my health doing it, I had to look at my exercise load and I reduced it. And if I get a lot of sleep, I'm, you know, okay, fine, I'm going to work out more. But that that notion that I... I'm a fan of CrossFit because of the high intensity and the heavy lifting and and things like that. It's a stimulating exercise the way exercise should be. But I wish it came with a label that said, must sleep two hours extra the day you do (laughs) this workout. And if people would do that, I think CrossFit would work really well. And I don't sleep two hours extra almost any night. I'm too busy. I think you are too. You're launching your your book here on New Year's. So Mm -hmm. uh, just for people who are listening uh, and doing CrossFit, right level of intensity
3: just do
2: recover from that intensity
3: please <laughs> and and eat enough too yeah. i mean i i actually like yeah. a lot of people don't understand the connection between activity level and calorie <laughs> intake and I mean, it seems pretty basic, but you, a lot of my patients are coming in. I have them fill out a, a fill out a full food diary, so I know exactly what they're eating, and I, and then I look at their exercise routine and I'm like, and I just do some numbers, and they're they're, they're like underfed by you know up to a thousand calories a day in some cases.
2: What do you think about the food companies like charging more for 100 calorie bars? <laughs> <Right>.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah, can we do math? <laughs>
3: Yeah, I, I mean, it, it it's, uh, yeah. So, the, I mean, I, I think you're right. At, uh, the Cross CrossFit should come with a label, but I do think there are a lot of smarter people now. I mean, I think the awareness is 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 increasing a lot. I mean, I, I know that because I I talk to a lot of CrossFit gym owners and trainers, yeah. and they're definitely, I mean, and they're a lot of the people who are suffering from these problems. So they're aware of the situation, and they're doing, you know, I think they're doing their best to change it, but. But as you pointed out, a lot of people who are drawn to CrossFit are the type of people who are likely to engage in that kind of activity in the first place. Yeah. So it's not uh, – the, the blame is is to be shared.
2: It, it is to be shared and, and part of it belongs with restaurants. Uh, you go to a restaurant now and, and you order a dinner and you spend 30 bucks and they give you like two ounces of protein, four like stabs of asparagus and a little dollop of some kind of other thing. And I'm like, I'm sorry, but I need and a
3: ba- and a basket of bread. Yeah, exactly.
2: And I'm like, hold the bread. I need four of those. And here's my stick of butter that I'm going to be put that I brought with me so I can get enough calories because I'm a big guy, you know, I'm pretty muscular. And I cannot sustain the level of cognitive performance I need to do the work that I do and to be with my kids if I eat at restaurants unless I order three meals. And then it's like $200 a day to feed myself.
3: Yeah, yeah, it is. uh, I guess that's where the bread comes in, right? They expect that you're going to fill yourself up on that before you eat the dinner. And then you're going to have a big piece of cake afterwards. Yeah, and then you're going to drink three or four beers as well, which helps to fill you up. Maybe eye.
2: add a little bit of MSG at the beginning to drop your blood sugar, so you're guaranteed to buy the cake. You know, people like that. Exactly. All right, one more thing. Have you seen Christiana Warner's TED Talk, totally debunking the Paleo diet?
3: Uh, I've seen parts of it, but you know, to be honest, I've just sort of lost interest in those things <laughs> at this point. Amen. I, I, it, yeah, it's just it's. Um, I understand it. I do. And, you know, paleo is kind of ripe for debunking because of the way it got set up early and because it's so easy to make a caricature of it and use the whole caveman Flintstone Mm -hmm. thing and people, you know, carrying around big hunks of meat. And uh, so it's easy to understand on one level. And yet on another level, it's kind of ridiculous because you can support, and I do this in the book, the paleo diet using all modern clinical yes. research and not relying on the evolutionary argument whatsoever. Every, everything that in the book, there's over 800 references um, from studies in the book. And you know, from when you look at nutrient density, uh, the, the you know eating organ meats and meats and fruits and vegetables and nuts and seeds is the what we should be doing. When you look at it from the context of an anti-inflammatory diet, this is what we should be doing. Uh, when you look at, you know, the importance of uh, physical activity and all of the lifestyle stuff we talk about, that's all well supported by modern research. Um, all of the arguments against foods on the paleo diet, like red meat and saturated fat, have fallen apart yeah. under further scrutiny, as you well know. So I don't. I just don't think they're. Anyone says they're debunking the paleo diet. I'm like. Okay, so you're you're debunking uh, decades of modern research that shows us that eating nutrient-dense, whole. Foods is bad for is bad for me. I don't think so. So I'm not going to waste my time. That's basically I, where I'm at with them. I
2: kind of look at debunking the paleo diet as uh, trolling for traffic for your blog at this point. Yeah. Because yeah. anyone who's tried it for a month, I don't know anyone who tried it for a month and didn't go, "Wow, I feel better. I lost weight and my brain worked better." They might have gone back to eating pizza and donuts, um, but that's an emotional or some other kind of motivational issue. It's not that the diet didn't work, and uh, it doesn't take two years to work. Like some of these low low calorie diets, lose a half a pound a month, and eventually you'll come to equal whatever. Like that didn't work on my three hundred pounds; I'd still be dieting if I did that.
3: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think you're right, and and I I mean the the, the one part of it which we already talked about before that I can appreciate, and of course you, you you know this from my book, is that just because a food wasn't eaten during the Paleolithic, that in my mind doesn't mean we should eat it now. Agreed. and. Yeah, so I think that did need to be debunked as a concept because it was pretty prevalent yeah. out there for a while. This idea that if we didn't eat it during the Paleolithic, we can't eat it now. And so I'm glad that that has evolved that kind of awareness. But other than that, it's look, it's just a nutrient dense whole foods diet, and that that focuses on the foods that are uh, have the lowest lo- level of, of anti nutrients and the highest level of micronutrients, and the foods that where we've been uh, eating for the longest period of time and that we're biologically and physically, physiologically adapted to eat. I think that's as simple as that.
2: Yeah, I'm, I'm really pleased that you've, you've taken that step of extending the paleo diet and the, the Bulletproof diet. Similar thing, I, I, I didn't start out from paleo. It started out from epigenetics and the Better Baby book and all that like a long time ago. But the idea that you have to be pedantic about I don't eat things with faces, I don't eat things our cavemen didn't eat. Like look at the, the bounty of evidence for whatever's in front of you, whether it's you know, sea algae extract or you know uh, some you know, tree sap that no one used to eat uh, or even a processed food. It, you look at biochemically, what does it do? Epidemiologically, what does it do? And then you make a judgment. And if you're not doing that, you're not thinking, you're just following rote rules that are probably going to break down as things change. So so kudos to you for for helping to push paleo beyond the you know I didn't grow it in my backyard I'm not going to eat it kind of thing cuz I I don't think that serves people and it makes paleo too exclusive for it to become mainstream which is cool.
3: Yeah, and that was exactly my intention with this book was that I if I could explain paleo in a way that wasn't that exclusive and wasn't didn't demand that you sign on to this whole paradigm. Mm-hmm you know you just look at it as, as a nutrient dense healthy way to eat rather than a club that you join then i thought it w- would be more appealing to a broader number of people yeah
2: i think uh i think you're onto something there chris we're running towards the end of the show and there's a question that i did ask you a long time ago when you're on the show but it's one i ask every guest to so ask you again what are your top three recommendations for people, not just paleo or anything else, but top three from your entire life experience that you would recommend for people who want to perform better? So if you wanted to kick more ass, what should you do?
3: Wow, great question. I wonder, I, I don't remember how I answered I wonder, I'm sure it'll be different. <laughs> Good. Um, I'll have to go, go back and check it out. Um, I guess... I'll answer just what's on, been on my mind lately. Lately, I've been thinking that sleep deprivation is the number one health challenge that we're facing today. So I would say sleep. It would be number one if you want to kick butt because if you're not sleeping, you're not kicking butt almost certainly. Um, number two would be um, Do some kind of regular stress management practice or meditation practice. Um, Meditation is one of of several options. I'm a big believer in this. And I think, again, that I think it's so crucial that in a lot like in a lot of cases, my patients are on a perfect diet, but they're not doing managing their stress or or doing anything that increases their self-awareness. And they're still really struggling Whereas I have patients who, you know, maybe are are a little little more lax about the diet, but they're able to focus their mind and they're able, and they have a certain level of self awareness that really helps them to accomplish their goals, whatever their goals are. And I think it's hard to do that if you don't have self awareness. And then number three would be don't follow somebody else's diet. Follow your own diet and do the, do the work that's required to figure out what that is, even though it does take longer than just following a cookie cutter approach. And you, you will not be sorry because you'll have that for the rest of your life. And, and not even that your diet will be the same the rest of, of your life. What you'll have is the ability to continually fine tune and tweak your diet based on your needs in each moment. And that's what it's all about.
2: Chris, thanks a ton for that answer and for being on the show. Will you tell our listeners where they can get a copy of your book when it launches, at, I think, New Year's Eve?
3: Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's December 31st. So it's personalpaleocode.com. And, of course, it's available at all the usual locations. It's also Kindle and Fire and iBooks and audiobook if, if you prefer to consume it that way. And my main website is com. Dave, I want to thank you again for having me back. It's always a pleasure. I enjoy our conversations and uh, look forward to seeing you at the next conference whenever that might be.
2: You got it, Chris. I'm sure we'll see each other at AHS or PaleoFX or somewhere. Great. Everyone, thanks for listening to the show today. And Chris, thanks one more time. We will check in with you all next week. If you enjoyed the show, please like us on iTunes, check us out on Facebook, or even better yet, try Bulletproof Coffee. You'll like it. Thanks.
3: You will.
0: A Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey.